What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Banta again coming at you guys. Haven't talked to you guys in a while. Been very, very, very busy with a lot of stuff around the house, getting the patio poured in, planting a bunch of trees, making my sustainable garden, you know, trying to keep myself busy during uh, this COVID time and, and things that are really, really, really not so great, as we're all aware. But here's one of the things I wanted to do and to provide a little bit of content and context to a lot of the stuff that Tony and I discussed in our pay-per-view Saturday night fight that we had with uh, Field Focus and Simply Faster and uh, the Football Track and Field Consortium crew. So we have a bunch of questions that we were asked and Tony and I talked for four hours on our philosophies and our thoughts and our disagreements on each other's systems. Um, it was really cool. It was a lot of fun and it was awesome to be challenged. If you guys want that video, you can find it at Field Focus and you can download it there. And it's called the Saturday Night uh, Fight and uh, between Tony and I over our 400 meter system. Anyway, so in that time that we talked, we discussed a lot of different things. And so I've come up with um, five questions today that were asked, and there's way more than that. I mean, there's probably somewhere around 50 questions that are pretty unique that we were asked that I want to go through. So the first question that I want to address today is basically, the based on your proposed theories, what do you feel is the best way to address all the energy systems necessary for the 400 meters? Well, this is kind of the crust of what we were discussing when we were having our debate over the 400. Personally, I believe in this idea of specificity of training. And that specificity can be described in a number of different ways and can be up to debate. For Tony, absolute speed and speed reserve is his focus. For me, I wanna get really good at the task at hand. So instead of kind of breaking it down so much into an integral parts, or doing a lot of 400 meter predictor workouts, I would rather get to the distances that are really close to the particular event that you're trying to run and specifically you're trying to sprint. And then what I wanna do is I wanna set up my training system and my workouts to be designed to attack the environment in which you're going to be competing in. So for example, if I have a high school sprinter in the state of Missouri, it is possible that they could run six races in a single day due to the fact that we have prelims in the 100 and 200. Now, even though I might not have an athlete that's going to run the one, two, and four, because we're talking about 400 meter training, they might run the two, which means they'd still have prelims in that. Now, that usually happens only at the district championships, but the state meet requires your sprinters to run four events or do four events on day one and then you have to make the finals to compete on day two so for us one of the things that we want to make sure our athletes are able to do and capable of doing is that they're prepared to handle at a minimum four high-end quality intervals then those intervals that are high-end and quality need to have the respect of recovery to simulate what the expectation is going to be in competition. Now, you can't ask your athlete to sit around with nothing to do for 45 minutes. But what you can do is I don't wanna see 
track and field athletes going out and running repeat 400 meter dash with incomplete rest. I don't want to see that ever. I don't like seeing that with my milers, let alone my sprinters. What I'd rather see are reps of 350, 450, 400s with 15 to 20 minutes recovery in between. And then halfway between that passive recovery, you might have some buildups, some wicket runs, some striders, whatever you want to call it in the middle to stimulate the body to be able to come back quickly. So for us, when I look at all energy systems necessary for the 400, I want to develop the energy system that is great for the 400, which means the interval and the recoveries and how many races you are going to expect to do in competition creates the foundation of your planning and your training. That is more important than worrying about, is this going to be aerobic or anaerobic or glidelytic? Because I work off for percentages. So when I have an athlete only do two 350s or 450s in a practice, the expectation is, is that they're going to be at 95% of their all-out 400-meter time in training. Now, is that going to improve absolute speed? Of course not those workouts will be on different days. So I have workouts to address the special endurance of sprinting a 400. I have workouts that address the lactic acid and the mechanics of dealing with the hydrogen ions or the buffering capacity of the body. I have workouts that are built around recovery to allow the athlete to recover so that we don't blow them up and get them hurt. I have workouts that are built around acceleration and I have workouts that are built around acceleration, max velocity, or power. And then I also have workouts that simulate races. So those are all the things that you have to do. Now, does that mean you can get everything done in a week? Not necessarily. So one of the strategies that I use to keep it frequent enough, but not so frequent that you can't get other stuff in, is I don't look at the Judeo-Christian seven-day schedule as really being the thing. I oftentimes will look at 14 days to make sure that I get all of those bases touched upon. Now, one of the criticisms that was brought up during the debate was, when am I doing absolute speed? Well, first of all, every warm-up that we have includes acceleration runs, max velocity runs, and tons and tons and tons of neurologically challenging drills that oftentimes many people in other programs might call X-factor. I do them every day. But we do different drills different days and we rotate those workouts a and b i rotate my warm general warm-ups and my flexibility or suppleness training as well we also build in plyometric work to support it and uh, lifting work to support the systems as well so even if there might be a week that's considered a quote unquote endurance week it's not endurance like you would think of going out and running 20 meter runs. It just might mean that it might have more longer intervals that are built above or below the 400 meter dash. And then following that week, you'll have a recovery week where it's light, fast and fresh. And then you'll have a speed week, a power week, which is more plyometric and loading and things like that. And then you'll have an endurance week. So basically you rotate speed, power, quote unquote endurance, and then recovery. And so when you filter those workouts in through a 14-day or a 10-day microcycle, you're getting the frequency enough of the training that the athlete is still improving. And, and remember that a sprinter, if you're doing your training right, is going to spend some time in an interval running all out. 
because that's part of the race plan. When we race model the 400, the first 60 meters of every 400 meter that we run is all out, you know, and that's coned off. We have the first 60, they got to fly at full speed. And then from there, they want, they want to maintain and run tall to the 200 meter dash. And then at the 200 meter dash, we ask them to reaccelerate or reinvest. Obviously, the cue is a false cue, but we get the result that we want from the athlete. Then as they start to reach that acidosis feeling, then at the end of the race, we ask them to go to their hands and maintain a quick stride and finish. And so there's ways you break down the race. But the thing you have to remember is, is that in your training as a track and field coach, you should never see your sprinter just rolling out into an interval. That should never happen. They should be practicing their acceleration mechanics and pushing through the first part of every interval. So even on a tempo day where we might be doing what I call um, back end pace, 400 meters, um, you know, extensive tempo or intensive tempo, that first 50 meters should still be hella hot and super fast. And you're building those things in within the interval, even if it's not separated out into its component parts, it's there as a whole effort with a lot of different components within that one interval. Okay. Next question. Is cross training a big part of my training program? Well, it depends on what you call cross training. I spend about 45 minutes every day in my program doing a general warm up, um, a team huddle, suppleness training, and our drills, which can include plyometrics, accelerations, and maximum velocity runs, along with ABC skips, mock drills, and things like that. So many people would consider that to be cross training. If we have an athlete that has a tendency to get hurt on a regular basis, what we've decided to do is we'll do two days on their feet and a third day off their feet. If that doesn't work, then we'll go every other day, which is what I've had to do with a particular family of sprinters that I have because they have a propensity for whatever reason amongst the family to have a lot of lower leg issues. And in addition to that, even though they're extremely fast and have extremely long strides, they also have a tendency to put on weight. So one of the ways that we handle that is for them, the weight room isn't necessarily as important because they are just naturally very strong. In fact, um, two of the family members out of the five were throwers in our program, along with being sprinters and jumpers and, and other things. So what we've provided them is we have a cardio room with a row machine and an elliptical and bikes, and we'll oftentimes spend time there. Now, one of the other things you have to realize is that you can simulate a lot of different training. So let's say it's not about injury prevention um, post problems, but prehabbing. One of the ways you can use cross training is if you are inside because the weather's terrible and you don't have an outdoor track in the winter and you have snow on the ground and stuff like that. And many people in the northern part of the United States around the Great Lakes, that's a challenge for you guys because not everybody has an indoor track. So what we'll do is we'll train one day on the tile or the carpet. And then the next day, if we have to be in again, no matter what the training plan says, we will have a BCD workout based off that training plan that we can address either in the cardio room um, through non-linear uh, speed movement or we'll do things in the pool. So if I'm trying to do acceleration and I need to do acceleration on the bike, what I'll do with that is I will lower the seat down really low, force the athlete to be in what would kind of be a compacted position and really have them pump the legs 
really, really hard in a piston-like action with a heavy load on the front end of the bike to make it feel a lot like acceleration. We will do a lot of plyometrics or jumps onto the boxes, things like that that are facilitating a lot of the things that we want to do plyometrically. We can do jumps on the bench. We can do medicine ball throws. Um, we'll do stuff where we'll do wall runs or, you know, you know, clap, clap, clap sprints where you're doing one, two, three, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you know, we'll have them do wall runs where they're running kind of up the wall, uh, which is kind of a boot check Schneider drill. We'll have them do some short sprints, maybe on a wood floor, throwing a light medicine ball, you know, things like that. There's all sorts of stuff you can do for acceleration. For maximum velocity running, some of the stuff that we'll try to do is maybe more um extended bounding but but what you would do in place so you're trying to keep the athlete kind of open and long-legged and bound through those motions another thing we'll do is we'll get them on the bike and we'll actually raise the seat way 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 up where they're barely able to stroke the pedals and we'll really lighten up the load on the bike just give them enough load so that the pedals don't spin out from underneath them and that way we can train max and velocity movements through that, even if we've already run on tile the day before, you can still get that work in and have that motion moving really, 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 really fast and stretch that stride out where they're just barely towing the pedal and then pulling it through. If for some reason we have to do deep water running, one of the tricks to deep water running is you want to do whatever you can do in the pool. You want to try to get a pair of like crappy tennis shoes that aren't super dirty, but you want to take them into the pool with you. Anytime you do deep water running or sprinting in the pool, what usually happens is the feet kind of flail all over the place and you don't have that feeling of gravity of pulling that foot through that feels really natural and it kind of changes your mechanics. So even when we do deep water running, we want tennis shoes on, we want the aqua jogger up on your waist and we want you to be straight up and down. Now, if you're doing some acceleration work or powerful work there, we'll spend time doing intervals where we have our athletes kicking either facing up or facing down on the side of the pool to work on leg strength and we're trying to cycle through. The one thing I would warn you with any of this is, is that sometimes because an athlete doesn't know how to load themselves, they can get hurt. So if they complain at all about anything feeling weird or off, you need to shut that workout down because it's just not worth it. Also, some athletes don't like to say anything. So when you are watching them, you need to communicate with them and make sure that they're making these movements appropriately. Another thing we'll do is we'll actually do A skips and B skips and C skips and uh, reverse C skips in the shallow end of the pool so that the athlete can still do some drills and rockets and things that we have in our program. So no matter what, they're still getting that done. Now, if an athlete is injured, we will simulate whatever workout we're doing on the track with them in the cardio room, or if its conditions are great, I actually have my athletes, including my sprinters, bring their bikes, and then they will ride their bikes on the track or in some of the trails and roads that we have nearby our campus that are really flat, and they will simulate the workouts that they were going to do on the track on their bike. Now, the cue to that or the key to that is, is we typically make whatever volume of running or sprinting we were going to do on a bike, it's usually about 20% more because they're unloaded and they're not going completely against gravity, even if they're on a bicycle that's not a recumbent bike.
Now, if they can't do that, we want to see if the athlete can do some stationary drills or things that they can do that mimic the movements and routines that our athletes are doing under single leg support. So we have a series of drills that we build in that simulate a lot of the same stuff that our sprinters would be doing at full speed with paw back action with the hamstrings or, uh, you know, healthy shins and, and ankles and feet. Now, why do we do that? And why do we want our athletes out on a bike as opposed to in the training room? Well, number one, you can't really see what they're doing in the training room and you can't hold them accountable. Number two, they don't feel like they're a part of the team and they feel hopeless. Number three, they're not getting vitamin D and sunlight in training and getting that ultraviolet light, which proves to be healthy, healing, and good for the psyche. So that's a general for us in terms of cross training for our sprinters. And then additionally, if you have distance runners, one of the things I always talk about is that if you're so hot to trot to do two a days, do one of your one of your training sessions on a two a day on the ground, and then the second session should be on a cardio piece of equipment. You don't need to pound the ground twice to get the aerobic stuff that you need to get. You need to allow that body to heal and, and the joints and everything to get a little bit of a break. So instead of going two a days on the road or on the ground, do a two a day where you're in the pool on a cardio equipment. And then the other one is running or you weight lift for one of the sessions and then you come back and run for the other session. And typically I'd rather run first and then weight lift later um, just because I don't want to fatigue the muscles and create opportunities for injuries. All right. Question number three, differences between male and females in the 400. Well, the big difference is, is that this is where the feed the cats and the critical mass system have some legitimate arguments for both men spend less time completing the distances that are standardized for, for both men and women. Every male elite sprinter is going to be much faster than an elite female sprinter. Thus, they spend less time under stress. Also, they spend less time where the potential of lactic buildup and lactic waste shows up without the body's ability to buffer the system. So therefore, a male sprinter at the elitist of elite levels can run anywhere from 43 to 45 seconds per 400. Well, the data shows that once you get into the low 40s, that's when that waste product eventually starts showing up. Well, it's only showing up at the very end of the race. For a female athlete, they're going to have a much larger contribution from the glylytic energy system and the aerobic energy system for the 400 meter dash. So should training be different? I don't think necessarily the training needs to be different. I have in the past have had my males, my top males do about 10% more than my top females. My middle range males do about the exact same as my top females and you work your way down. In terms of workouts, how men and women respond, very different. Usually the men are all rolling around on the ground and vomiting and and all that kind of stuff. And that could be something that just has to do with they're that much faster, thus the body is under that much stress and strain and load. Um, but the females tend to finish races and, and intervals on their feet. And comparatively, their times match up perfectly to elite status, but the response to it is very different. I like to train males and females together because I think there's something socially respectable about that mutual, um, you know, mutual experience through training the struggle through training, the adaptation through training, the benefit of it, holding each other accountable, I think is really, really great. And in addition to that, if you have some super elite females, they can run 
with some of your less elite males and that makes them better through training by holding them accountable to those very high percentages of effort that I talked about in question number one. Um, how do you handle that in terms of like, if I would have a dude and we're doing 10% more, I'm probably not going to have the dude do a 500 and the female do a 50. What I'd probably do is just find a way to add an extra interval at the end or combine two smaller intervals to make up the difference in that particular uh, distance. Why do I do that? Well, management of practice. So if I have a bunch of sprinters, I don't want to have an extra interval in there per se, because then that's an extra recovery time and it takes us that much more to get through the workout. I would much rather have that interval become more complete. So instead of having a 500 and a 450, you know, and then a couple of 150s, maybe I would do a 450, another 450, and then come back with a 200 and then a 150. And I add that distance in there. And it takes a little bit of planning to figure that out. But ahead, if you do it ahead of time, it's not a problem. And, um, you know, again, the difference between male and female in the 400 is not going to be all that much different. Weight room probably is going to be a little bit different because men and women respond a little bit differently um, to the weight room. I'm going to keep the weight room as a part of the program for females a little bit longer because it spikes their growth hormone more than men. Um, men tend to be... Um, you know, a little bit more exhausted from the weight training. And so that would be a little bit different. But in regards to drills and the warm up and technique and suppleness training and some other ancillary means like plyometrics, they're probably all going to do the same amount, you know, of those units. It's not going to necessarily be the same volume, but you're going to be taking them through the same units of training. So those would be the small differences in how I would handle that. But at the end of the day, you know, your outcomes are going to be the same, which is we want to run really, really fast as we possibly can. as close to just below the distance or above it to get the highest correlation to improve sports performance. Okay. Now, how does your system address the needs of athletes of all types who bring in different uh, sprinting abilities? So for me, I start off with the 400. And again, we talked about this in our program but i start with the 400 because that's where most human athletes are at they are uh biomotor type and also if you did a biopsy of their muscle tissue they tend to be what's called quick twitch oxidative and uh, that means they can do both they can go up they can go down but every athlete has a lot of other things besides the muscle structure that dictates what they're going to be the most successful at. Are they a warrior type or a thinker? Are they predisposed to be aerobic or are they more of a twitchy person? Are they a quad sprinter? Or are they a hamstring sprinter? There's all these different things you can look at. Now, you don't know that right away because we're not gonna be doing muscle biopsies and tests can only tell you so much. However, those tests become really important to educate you on what direction you go. So what do I do in my program? Well, the first week we try out every event and we do a lot of what I call power speed tests. So we do a standing 30, a flying 30, a standing long jump, a five repeat bound, an overhead shot put, throw, overhead back. We'll do a softball toss to see if they can throw the jab. We'll see if they can do um, any kind of cartwheels or backflips or walk on their hands. We'll see what their hurdle mobility looks like. We'll test the rookies, the rookies in the mile. 
then we'll eventually have them throw the javelin, the discus, and the shot put, and uh, see what kind of skills they have. From there, after that first week, we now have a profile on the athlete, and we can compare it to historical data that we have on other athletes. And what I'll do is I'll take the standing 30 and the flying 30. That gives me a 60. Then I use that 60 to kind of predict what their baseline potential is as an athlete. Now, interestingly enough, with that flying 30, that pretty much tells me without fail that they're going to be, how good they're going to be or not going to be. So now that's with a caveat. So out of the top 20 girls ever in flying 30s, only two, which means 18 of them reached elite status and only two of them did not. So that is a very strong, highly predictive test that tells me how good they're going to be. But here's the caveat, and this is where it gets funky. That flying 30 also typically tells me who's going to be my fastest distance runner, but their times might not be elite like my speed power athletes, but amongst the distance kids, those distance kids with the fastest flying 30 also tends to predict their elite status. Then. Once we kind of figure out what events we think they're going to have early success in, we then build the training around them. And depending on how successful they were on that test, dictates how much attention we give them to their specific plan. So that's important to think about as well. So now what we're doing is we're going to be running not only veteran state level kids that are coming back as a program and a workout, and then we have our veteran untrained athletes in terms of volume and intensity. And then we have a rookie group. So we have that. So you already have three levels for every athlete in your program that is running. Then we also build in, is this kid a feed the cats athlete, a critical mass athlete, or are they a distance runner? Then are they a multi-eventer? So you have these five different kind of groups of athletes that you're trying to keep track of in your training, which can sound intimidating. But the reality is, is that if you do the workouts ahead of time and you communicate with your assistant coaches at least once a week, and then we check in once a day, you're able to balance out everybody's training and then to start to build the training around, let's say, your 10 most successful athletes in your program. And then everybody else does some sort of iteration of those 10 workouts. Um, that's how we handle that. And that's how we bring all these different sprinters to different abilities. If you go check out my Twitter handle, uh, Sprinters Compend, recently I put down results and progress from a bunch of different athletes that were in my program um, in the last couple of years and in a bunch of different events. I have an example of a 100-meter sprinter, a 400-meter sprinter, a 800-long sprinter, okay, because I don't think of it as middle distance. I think of it as a long sprinting, a discus thrower, a triple jumper and a long jumper. And what you're going to see that all of those athletes had in common, regardless of their talent, even though most of them are um, elite or school record holders, you're going to see that they continually got better and better and better on a trend. That doesn't mean they're going to PR every time they step in the ring, the runway or on the track, but the trend shows that PRs are going to continue to keep coming. And that's throughout multiple years of having these athletes that are female, who typically females start off with a lot of what God gave them as freshmen and sophomores, unlike boys who keep getting better because testosterone is a cheat code. So if you want to address the athlete, you have to address the specific skill set that you're trying to make them best at. 
and then provide them an avenue to PR. So it can sound complex. The reality is, is you're just tying in the training to the four or five things that they need to do. So the one young lady that I put on there is a critical or a feed the cats athlete. And I put her on there because I specifically trained her that way. And, you know, she went from like a 14-8 handheld all the way down to an FAT-1280. It's a big drop, you know, over a, over a, you know, a couple of years. But we trained her that way. So she was not running repeat 400s or back-to-back days because she was a feed the cat and she couldn't handle that training. Meanwhile, my school record holder in the long jump absolutely was a critical mass athlete. She's the third fastest girl in school history in the 400, second best in the triple, and the school record holder in the long jump and broke a school record that has been around since 1981. So she needed a very, very different system of training to address her very unique skill sets. And thank God she was part of our program because she ended up being our varsity record holder in total points. All right, last question. Examples of in-season and out-of-seasons, PDF of workouts. Guys, go on uh, Field Focus, the website, and download our talk. We have the, the screens up there. We have the PowerPoints up there. And we both, uh, Coach Holler and myself, have weeks worth of workouts on there for you guys to look at. So that's what I'm going to say for that. But the second part of it is, what would I suggest that really helps coaches? Number one, find the highest level mentor that's willing to talk to you. And then find the best coach in the area and go out for them to have a coffee or drink a beer with them or grab a soda or a hamburger or whatever and pick their brain. One of the best things I learned um, from a person vicariously was a guy, Aeneas Williams, who you guys probably know, Hall of Fame defensive back. When he got into the league, that's what he did. He went out and found all the best players in NFL history that played his position and asked them if they could answer some questions for him. And most of them, now that they were retired, were more than willing to sit down and talk with them. And he was able to pick their brains and through mentorship, really figure out what needed to be done to be a Hall of Famer and the rest is history. So a mentor is really important. The next thing I would say is obviously, hey, my Sprinter's Compendium is very valuable. It's got 50 coaches from around the world. I think it's a good resource. Tony Holler's material is great. Latif Thomas's material is really great. Um, you could dive deep into those. For coaches' education, you cannot beat Altus, which is the brainchild of uh, a multitude of different people, John Godina and Dan Path and Stu McMillan and uh, Kevin Tyler. Altus is incredible. And their educational stuff that they've got from their essentials to their sports-specific and um, event-specific training is amazing. The USATF program and coaches' education is great, especially when you get to the level two. And after you get a level two in something you're really comfortable in, my suggestion would then go get a level two in something that is the most alien to you. So for me, I went and did sprints, hurdles, and uh, sprints, hurdles, and relays for my first one because that's what I was most comfortable with. And then for the next one, I went with distance running. Well, thank God I did because I ended up having two high school All-Americans and uh, two other distance runners that ended up being D1 within the same year. And so I needed to be prepared to handle that. If I get in this summer, I'm going to do the jumps because I feel like that's an area that I'd like to shore up. Not so much the horizontal jumps, but specifically pole vault and high jump. 
feel that those are both programs I need to get better at. Um, and then, you know, there's other good books that are just relevant to training in general. So anything you can get from Tudor Bompa and any of his periodization books with also has Carlo uh, Buzicelli is in the most two recent versions of that book. Those are incredible for you to truly understand why we do what we do in training. So in review, get a great mentor, find the highest level person you can find and ask them questions. And then also find the best coach in your area that has continued success. Offer up food and drink as payment and hopefully they will come through for you. Second, go to Altus, do all of their online education. Go to the USATF level one school so that you can get the benefit of going to the level twos. And then lastly, pick up books that are good for training in general. And once you have that good basis of periodization through Tudor Bumpa's materials, or specifically training like from the Sprinter's Compendium or the book Distance Training Simplified, then expand out your uh, view and start casting your hook into different areas on swimming, on gymnastics, on um, you know CrossFit, figure out what those people are doing. And then you can really start to connect the dots in terms of your training neural network and building up your toolbox. Well, thank you guys. I know this is a really, really long one for five questions, but I hope you feel I've addressed them. Um, again, I'm going to be doing these until we exhaust all of the questions that we were asked that we did not get to in our pay-per-view, but our pay-per-view did go four hours. So get on field focus and download that vi video. There's some spicy interactions between Tony Holler and I, I think you'll enjoy it. And you're also going to learn a ton. All right, guys, stay safe, be smart, make good choices. We love you. Peace out. Coaches, athletes, weekend warriors. Have you thought about recovery or regeneration? Today we oftentimes think in training about the stimulus we put on our body and the workload that we do to fatigue us daily, but we don't give enough to the recovery component. Simply Faster has numerous options to enhance your recovery in between the sessions of work that you put your body through daily. They have Theraguns, Normatic Regeneration Kits, and they're all cost-effective options. My athletes at my high school often use the Theragun in between intervals, race days, and training sessions. In the world we live in, it's hard to guarantee that we're going to get a doctor's visit. Simply Faster provides you the option where you don't have to be behind a paywall to get the care that you need with the equipment that they provide. So get yourself the regeneration and recovery that you need and level up. Simply faster. Check it out.